Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Mr. Meredith, how you going, mate? Pretty good. I think I missed you, though. I know it's been a week. Missed us, maybe. I couldn't even. I didn't even. When I you rocked up with your top button undone, I was actually thinking, <laughs> who is this guy? <laughs> What's happened? Where's he been, Greece? I didn't tell me. You didn't tell me we were going live. I just got a uh, notification from LinkedIn. Yeah, yeah. We're. Uh, oh, I, I also just broke like a, a. I did like a wall break because I took a photo of us as we were doing. Is this like another one? <laughs> so I did like a photo of us in the live stream while it was going live and now I'm showing it again. I don't know what that means. <laughs> so if anyone's listening to this on Saturday morning, we're actually just uh, talking live on YouTube. Uh, so to record this, could be some um, characters that show up throughout. But we're talking about a lot today. We got um, we got a heap from you. Obviously, um, you have to adorn your economist hat and give us an economic update. Uh, like the rest of them, I'm wrong on everything. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think two weeks ago when we caught up, we was talking about how your call on the FANG ETF could have been the greatest of all time. Uh, and so it's only fitting that we come back into it. We talk about the mistakes that were made. Maybe. Maybe you're right, though, because I think there's some information that might point towards you actually being right. Um, and we've got heaps of questions from SMSFs to portfolio construction to when, what happens when a fund closes down. Someone's investing or has invested um, in a, a farm-related thing where they can buy like a ap- yeah. apricots and they can own part of the farm. So it's a, and they're like, "What do I do now?" Uh, so you know, some good questions that have come through. As always, our two cents segment every Saturday is uh, a bit more laid back, where we talk about uh, your questions and then what's happening in the news this week. Uh, if you do have any questions, you can head to the Rask websites or into your show notes if you're listening to this. And just click ask a question and follow the prompts to fill out the form, which gets sent through to us each week. And Drew and I will have a chance to answer those. You can get in contact with Drew, by the way, and the team at Wattle Partners Financial Planning at uh, wattlepartners.com.au. There is also a link for that in your podcast player. It says financial planning. So, mate, we are going to answer some questions today. But I think the thing that is on everyone's mind is interest rates. Interest rates. one week off. One week off and see what happens, mate. The uh, world unfolds. Like, so tell us what's happening in the world of RBA interest rates. I give up. I don't know. 
<laughs> I quit. Maybe that's the word. Andrew Derrymouth quits. <laughs> It'll be the headline of Bloomberg tomorrow, trust me. <laughs> uh, it was just a, a kind of shocking, and I think the, the chorus of, maybe not, maybe that's a bit aggressive a word, but the chorus of people questioning what the RBA is doing is continuing to grow. I mean, I sent you a text message earlier today that had Philip Lowe as, was it Mr. Burns? Mr. Burns, like doing yeah. the Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> the poor guy. Um, and then something, there was, I think there was a survey, 50% of people thought he should quit or should lose his job. Um, oh, wow, I didn't see that. And I think that all these survey. I mean, it's the same surveys that got names like Bodie McBoatface as well. So you don't always trust <laughs> the surveys completely. Um, but they hiked rates again and the market fell. Everyone will say the market was smashed, but the market fell about 1%, mainly because no one was expecting another rate hike. Um, and there's, I mean, there's a list of a multitude of reasons why people weren't expecting a rate hike. Uh, but it seems like the central bank here, at least, is looking beyond that and not sure whether they're just trying to catch up with New Zealand. It's at 5.5% or uh, the US, which is, I think, close to 5 mm. um, But we hit 4.1%, which turns an average mortgage – it means an average mortgage repayment has doubled in a period of 12 months, which is just crazy when you think about the impact of that. Mm. Yeah, it's huge. Right, it's huge. Um, just – People, I hear some people recently getting modest pay rises. I'm like, oh, that's good. Now I'll just be able to give more to the bank. Yep. <laughs> still, <laughs> still paying double what I had. Like your wages and doubling. So yeah. Uh, and it's all that evidence is coming through in GDP data and retail sales and everything that that the economy is slowing down. I mean, savings rate hit the lowest point since 2008. You would have seen that. I think it's down below four percent. So middle of the GFC. That's the level of savings people are amount of money people are putting away from their savings at the moment and that got up to like i think it was 19 percent during the pandemic which means i got go. it up here on the screen because i was actually looking at this in anticipation for today um where are we uh, naturally if people are saving less they're eating into their savings to to pay their other expenses um all this they're, they're not putting anything away anymore naturally that's what a savings rate means so yeah but you combine that with the gdp result came out household spending was up just 0.2 percent i think that's not even inflation adjusted retail sales were down heavily in april building approvals hit the worst lowest level in 10 years uh and then this hidden thing is that a lot of something like half the fixed rate mortgages made during the pandemic haven't even rolled over yet so yes if you're on a variable rate mortgage your mortgage rate, your repayments have doubled you could have doubling and tripling for some of these fixed rate mortgages when they come off in the next six to 12 months. Yeah. Um, and then, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yep, we're increasing interest rates more. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but what was the rationale, right? Like, so you're pointed to all the things that I'm seeing in the data, which seems to suggest that the economy's slowing. Yeah. Yeah. But what, what, was, what was the reason? It seems to change. Like, I mean, inflation is still there. Inflation was seven rather than 6.9% last month so uh, it's still falling um, and then the RBA this time blamed a lack of productivity growth and minimum wage increases as the threat to being inflationary um, but there's there was a couple of good articles I'm not sure if you heard of Rob Prugay um, name sounds familiar yeah well known in the financial service industry he's kind of come out and thought are we trying to apply the wrong rules from history to monetary policy today like we're trying to compare today to the 1970s where you had like an oil crisis and stagflation, so stagflation being high inflation, and we've got a question on that too. Mm-hmm. High inflation, high unemployment, and low growth. But, you know, it took us 15 years of low interest rates didn't didn't stimulate inflation. 
uh, do we think monetary policy, if given we couldn't stimulate it, do you think monetary policy alone can kill inflation as well? Um, yeah. And particularly with the pain that comes through. So the RBA essentially wants higher unemployment because higher unemployment means less spending, but every 0.1% unemployment is, you know, hundreds of thousands of jobs. So, Yeah, yeah. Well, if you just so. Um, I'm not much of a chartist myself, mate, but uh, when I look at uh, the household spending, which we did just bring up on the screen for anyone that's watching, it's just like a ski slope straight down, right? Yeah. Like, like, And that should tell you all you need to know, I think, about where we're headed. Um, I think anyone that's out there it's working. can tell. There's, I mean, restaurants here yeah, are full, but there's less people shopping, there's less people doing everything, and you've almost got this barbell of, you know, High income earners that are, aren't that have lower mortgages, don't have that any mortgage in some cases, and then the you know people on minimum wage have just got a significant increase, but their mortgage repayments make that disappear overnight. Yeah. Um, it's, it's something's going to give at some point, and yeah. and what we're what you've seen in the past is if it does force us into a recession, well, the RBA is going to end up cutting rates significantly at some point as well, and that's why that's the premise of my. <laughs> Of my thesis. <laughs> Who knows when that will be? I'm running out of time. So with three interest rate increases into Drew saying that oh, Andrew, sorry, Andrew Deremuth Esquire saying that interest rates would fall. So if I'm not mistaken, that's like 0.75% or 75 basis points in uh, Deremuth's jargon to get us back down to the left. <laughs> For the call to be correct, look great. To be honest, uh, it's probably if it was if we were in April right now, seeing the data that we're seeing, I reckon you would stand a chance. Yeah, to be honest, but and I'm gonna have to cut quickly. Like this is going to be yeah. this, this has the potential to be bad if it's not cut quickly. Yeah, eventually, because I can't, and one other point there was is the inf- you know the the key purpose of monetary policy is to cut demand get cut consumer demand in retail it's working but everywhere else it isn't particularly if prices are going up um so it's you know in, increasing interest rates doesn't help with higher energy prices or issues with the transmission grid and all the other cost of living increases that are happening so mm. um in some cases it actually increases rent because you've got less buildings being constructed um, yeah. builders going bust right that's me <laughs> this is me yelling at the wind i think they call it <laughs> Yelling and no one listening. <laughs> Just shaking your fist at the clouds. Yeah. <laughs> Damn you. Um, yeah, well, I mean, yeah. So what about in the US? Well, they, even weirder, maybe not weirder, they kept rates on hold, but said they'll probably hike two more times this year or yeah, in, their, in their dot plot chart. Yeah, the dot plot, yeah, where they kind of predict where they expect it to be for the rest of the year. Inflation over there seems to be, <laughs> there's a comment just came Old man, shouts the cloud. Thank you. Um, <laughs> but uh, inflation seems to be rolling off quicker there. The difference being in the US, uh, interest rates have more of an immediate impact on the corporate sector than the mm. consum- consumer sector because most of their mortgages are fixed rate. Um, and also that they had much more significant wage growth over there more more quickly. So it kind of made sense for them to be more aggressive. Um, mm. I don't know whether it's you know the RBA trying to protect the currency and make a, make the Aussie dollar worth more or this missing or using lag data, I guess, to make decisions and pulling on one lever when it you know, probably requires fiscal policy on the other side mm. to lift a, do a bit more of the heavy lifting. Maybe this is an attempt, like the perception of inflation, right? Because it's the perception of inflation, which is very powerful. So 
if, I, if you and I come on here and we say, well, it looks like we're increasing interest rates and everything is pointing to the economy slowing, that perception is self-fulfilling, right? That maybe this is like a rhetoric. <laughs> maybe this is like a, a perception increase. <laughs> Surely you give it time though. Like this many interest rates in a short period of time when you know they have a lag, like historically it's had an 18-month lag to have a real impact on the economy. Mm. So you're raising – this is the, the problem is you don't know – you raise until it breaks, but you don't know when it breaks until after mm. the fact. Mm. Um, so it's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've been, well, we've been preparing this for this one for a few weeks. So. Yeah, his blood is boiling. But we have seen this. Um, like it, there's been this story has been told before. We've seen this play out many times before in cycles gone by where that's where the MMT, the modern monetary theory crowd came from, where they, yep. they believe that central banks don't know what's the accelerator and what's the break. Uh, they just bang everything at the same time and see what happens. And um, it doesn't help when you have governments who are stimulating, right, or who have been stimulatory over the last little while. At the same time, the central bank is trying to raise rates and slow everything down. So I don't know. It feels like the one thing that is probably keeping everything in check is the unemployment rate. But um, Which fell again. Yeah, if that turns, then significant, you would see significant change, I believe. Yeah. And we're seeing a lot of people come in from overseas. Obviously, it's going to have an impact on property, but does it have an impact on unemployment? Maybe. Maybe. Eventually. Yeah, eventually. So just to confirm then, um, what is Andrew Derrimuth's current outlook for interest rates? I don't know. <laughs> I just want to unplug and walk out. <laughs> So we uh, we don't know for sure what Andrew Derrimuth is thinking, but we do know that he's shaking his fist at the cloud. And we are three, probably three uh, cuts away from the original like benchmark. But we could see substantial change. Maybe like coming into Christmas, things just aren't smooth sailing. Like, I think there's a growing risk of a recession, clearly, yeah. and a real risk, more so here than in the US. As much as a consumer is strong, yeah. there's a massive risk of a recession with how hard they're going. And the potential impact of mortgage you know mortgage arrears property falling significantly yeah. and anything that triggers on there which we haven't seen we've seen probably go up in the last month so yeah yeah um so other outside of the news of the macro let's zoom into the micro and what's going on in your world mate what have you been up to i haven't seen you for two weeks <laughs> i haven't seen you for two weeks yeah. um <laughs> well, probably applies We've been up in Sydney a couple of times, visiting clients and uh, office up there and a couple of events. Um, ChatGPT masterclass, which you probably mm-hmm. maybe you haven't had the, I haven't had the old, treat, I haven't had the the honour. But you did tell me about it yesterday when I did see you. Yeah, yeah, that was excellent. That was so. How to use ChatGPT within your own financial planning business, basically, uh, super interesting. Mm. Um, and I don't know, I'd have to, half the time I need to check my calendar. That's what the, what the weeks look like. Well, that's what I do when I ask you this and I, you go back to you asking me, I just go look back at last week and what I've been uh, yeah. doing. Yeah. yeah. Good memory. Yeah. I mean, big news was changes to financial advice law. So I'm not sure if I shared a photo, but we're going through this process every year as a financial advisor since the Royal Commission. Mm. You not only have to report the fees you got last year, you have to ask the client to opt in and ask for their consent to charge fees, so three different forms. Yep. And if they have more than one account, you have to have a f- consent form for each of those accounts. So I had a pile, about 150 pages on my desk this week, reviewing those 
opt-in consent forms uh, that we were sending out. Um, thankfully, so this was a big news on, I think it was on King's birthday, mm-hmm. uh, Stephen Jones announced that there will only be a single templated standard form for opt-ins and you'll only have to do it once per year. I mean, most of the issues in that we get from clients because if we're sending it to a retiree client in their 60s and 70s, we send it seven forms via DocuSign. Um, a lot of people are traveling. It can be incredibly difficult mm. and frustrating, particularly using it on an iPad apparently is quite difficult for, yeah, for DocuSign. Um, but that was massive news for the advice industry and it should help in terms of affordability going forward because imagine if every client you have, you have to go through this massive amount of paperwork that doesn't necessarily uh, add or detract anything from the service you're providing. It just takes a whole heap of time. Mm. I am um, the last, I was just looking back to see if you did send me this photo, but no, I got a photo um, from you, which <laughs> is a sc- screenshot <laughs> from your LinkedIn. And it's a quote, it's got a picture of um, Phil Lowe with the quote, if people can cut back spending <laughs> or in some cases find additional hours of work, that would put them back in a positive cash flow position. I can see Philip driving an Uber or something if he needs to. <laughs> That's <laughs> it's just what was your comment back to me? Can you repeat that? Um, <laughs> I said Jesus Christ. What a great financial counselor. <laughs> yeah. It just seems to be a disconnect, you know, parts of whether it's in government or in parts of the, you know, financial service or regulation where there's a massive disconnect between what's happening on the ground and what's happening in in the data or in in spreadsheets that are being used to make decisions. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll stop yelling at the wind. <laughs> I don't want, like, yeah, I mean, I, uh, there was an article on the RAS Media website this week from Drop Bear who suggested that, um, be, there's, it's predicted that there'll be more RBA predictions. Um, so I, I think it's I think it's a bit of folly getting involved in the whole RBA said this, RBA said that kind of thing. Like we, at the end of the day, we're, we're dealt the cards were given. And, um, you know, it's very easy for us to judge. Sure, we should have opinions as finance professionals, but we don't, at the end of the day, we don't know. Um, and it's 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 really frustrating. I think that's where the, the the challenge is because you try and design portfolios, you try and design investment strategies, and you just don't know. But um, yeah, I mean, interesting, interesting to say the least. I'd be, I, I, we've got a question on this, so we can we can hark on about this in a little bit more time. But um, I think there's a good message there too, which is don't invest based on what you expect to happen from a central bank or from government policy, and yeah. don't make changes on assumptions. You got to build portfolios that look far beyond that and yep. into multiple outcomes. Um, and that was, I think, Howard Marks from Oak Tree was talking about that more recently as well. What yeah. matters isn't what you, what you think might happen in the next six or 12 months. It's you know being exposed and getting the benefit of compounding over long periods of time. Yeah, well, imagine if, for example, you weren't exposed to equities this year, like yep. particularly US equities, like Australia not Tech. so much, but yep. like technology, like we, we see the data, like technology companies are absolutely ripped it this year. But if you didn't have technology, you would, you're basically like, so, so you're still up in single digits, but nothing like you would be if you just had the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ or whatever. Yeah. And it's this idea of like, you just, you have to be exposed. That should be everyone's base case uh, all the time. So we do, we, I didn't have time to put together some buy, hold, sell, but I did note that you met Grant Hackett. You said in your notes, what's that all about? Yeah, we met uh, Grant and Felipe who happened to 
kids go to the same kinder. In oh. <laughs> so they run Generation Life. So I, it was interesting because we had like three questions a week before yeah. on investment bonds. They're like one of the top three providers of investment bonds in the country. They are, yeah. So it was kind of going through the uh, role of investment bonds within portfolios, how they're becoming more relevant as the superannuation not caps come in, not a caps. cap. Yep. Uh, cap. And then we're getting cap. more and more questions about it. It's basically tax-paid entities. And the, the big message was them, for them was it was about after-tax returns that people don't really think about. Mm. Your after-tax returns in a managed fund or a trust or a super fund versus the after-tax re- tax returns via an investment bond. Um, and it can actually be lower than the company tax rate as, as well, which I was quite yeah. uh, intrigued by. Yeah, the franking credits can offset some of that insurance bond tax. And yeah. capital losses too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, which is really a interesting. Very unique strategy. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. We do get a lot of before. No, 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 we haven't. We haven't actually had any type of investment or insurance bond expert on the show. We probably should do that, given how many questions we're getting, and maybe we could bring them on to two cents. That would be a bit of fun. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, because I'd imagine we took we spoke about this at the Australian shareholders event uh, up in Sydney, didn't we? On stage, like some of the alternative strategies and preemptively. Um, for super changes and, and in, not just now but in the future. Yep. And uh, they were definitely one of them. And that's why we're getting a lot more questions. Um, so maybe we should do that. But I met Drew- a client today that had exactly that. They, oh, yeah. They've got excess over the caps and thinking caps. about setting up a company. Yep. So I emailed these guys and said, um, what have you got a strategy for this? How could you help? Yep. Cool. Yeah, cool. They've got a lot of information. It's probably – the information that the insurance bonds ha- providers have on their website is good, but it's probably still pretty confusing to a lot of people that don't have a finance background. So it probably helps to get some advice or at least really just take your time to slow down a bit and make sure you're making the right decision. Um, so we've got quite a few questions. Obviously, when you take, we normally get a lot of questions from one week, let alone two weeks, and we're kind of just ramping into questions. Uh, and so we do apologize about that. Um, but the questions we will be answering today, there are many. It's really important that you understand that we are strictly limited to giving general financial information uh, as we answer these questions. We don't know your personal circumstances. If you want to get personalized financial advice, you will have to see a financial planner, like say Drew here from Water Partners or your trusted advisor who can take into account your needs, goals, and situation. If we do mention any products, managed funds, ETFs, those types of things, super funds, go and read the product disclosure statement or PDS, as well as the target market determination. That's a new one, TMD. Um, they're all available on the provider's websites. Uh, so the first question was actually a question which I don't think is was initially intended for us, but I thought it was interesting anyway, and we could just riff about it, which is physio who doesn't know uh, sends in the question of, hey, broskies, or help, help broskies, I am a physio planning to start my own clinic. I am torn between a pre-existing physio franchise group with processes and structures already in place or starting my own clinic to try and climb that mountain myself. What factors would you consider when making a decision on this conundrum? Any advice from the Finneys is appreciated. And just so you know, physio don't, who doesn't know, um, we do have the Australian Business Podcast. So you can uh, go and listen to that. It's a fantastic uh, podcast run by accountants. Uh, so go and check that out. But Drew, what do you think? Oh, there's a lot of considerations. I actually answered this question for a friend recently as well who was looking at, uh, might have been osteo, not physio. Uh, mm-hmm. And there's naturally pros and cons of both. A lot of it, to, in my view, comes down to personality, your experience in business and mm-hmm. your financial position. Um, I mean, one of the challenges of joining existing practice is you're going to see a 
major a big portion of your your billings paid to the practice because they do everything for you yeah but at the same time if you haven't had a lot of experience you can learn all those processes during that you know you can learn what you actually need to do whereas if you you've had businesses you got good savings and you ha- you're happy to go and try it yourself well uh and you're a risk taker yeah. <laughs> yeah. some level of organization but I think for a lot of people, just going in there and having the experience, building your career, building your name before you try and do it yourself. And I think you had some comments around exit strategies. You know, you always got to mm. think about the breakup before you go into into the, <laughs> yeah. the business relationship. Yeah, and then you do because with these ones, these business, I call them business in a box. Yeah, um, because you get kind of the things like some of the things you get when you go into a franchise is you get the branding, you get the marketing, like they, they obviously inc- they often include some form of marketing. Sometimes that's that cost is pushed back on you, but it might be like SEO or a website or something like that. Um, they often prompt you on things like CPD or uh, professional development. So they'll have like a portal that you can log into every month and get your, your, your points. Um, sometimes, not always, but sometimes they take care of your accounting and your financials. It's quite rare. Um, and then the final one is oftentimes for something like this, there's a booking system. So some way to source clients because they do it at the network and level well, yeah. and they, yeah, and they push that down and that then takes care of things like billing for the NDIS, billing for veteran affairs, Medicare, those types of things. So those are some of the complexities that they normally take care of. Um, but in return, you have to pay them for the franchise fee and then you have to pay them a percentage of sales. Uh, in this case, it'd be per- percentage of like the revenue or the billings that you have as a physio. Um, it's really hard, as Drew said. But starting your own business is hard. It's almost uh, personality driven, I think. Yeah. Is it? And you probably want a little bit of experience doing this sort of thing before you do it yourself, and then yeah. make sure you can get out of it if you need to. That's with this question. I got the sense that they're not super experienced in physio. Yeah. I think that's probably the impression you got too. So yeah. I probably wouldn't be rushing out to do it. Just go and see what other businesses, like work for a business for six months or 12 months, then go to another one and see what they do and see, just take the best bits from both. Um, but the one thing that I wanted to call out, which you noted here was um, some of these franchise contracts. So when you go into them and you get the business are incredibly onerous. Yeah. Uh, and I had an example recently of working with someone where they to sell their business because they want to exit for non-business reasons, um, over 50% of the fee that they would receive for selling their business was the fee. It's a transfer fee, they called it, back to the franchise owner, which is incredible. Imagine you've got your business and then you just have to give half of it away because you've signed a contract many years ago. Um, so I know really, we hate costs, but always pay for legal advice when you're doing oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. Pay for legal advice because they also can have things like non-competes. So yeah. if you do sell or you want to just leave the business not working, where can you go and work after that? You've got to be really careful with those things. So um, personally, I think if I, because I'm a bit of a risk taker, um, I'd probably just go and start my own business, but not until I had the experience and the, the business plan in place. Uh, Drew. The second one was right down your alley. Show, Show us, us your fame. <laughs> like it. <laughs> so I sold it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Are you still, still hold it? Okay. Yeah. Show us your fame. I was actually just chatting to GlobalX just before this. Uh, and there's a question regarding ETF portfolio construction. If someone was to hypothetically construct a portfolio that included ASX STW, which is- um, ASX 200. ASX 200. Yep. The IAA, which is the Asia- Black Rock Asia 50. Yep. yep. The IVV, which is the S&P 500, USA 500. Uh, the IEU, which is the European one. Yep. Hopefully, uh, yep. Yep. <laughs> and then they say, so this is, so we've got SCW Aussie, IAA Asia, 
uh, IVV USA and they go IEU, which is um, Europe. But then they say it would have an 85% overlap with the iShares Global Healthcare Companies ETF, which is IXJ. Would this make the IXJ ETF redundant in the portfolio? So they're worried about, I've already got this portfolio of global companies and 85% of it is already included in my existing portfolio of these other ETFs. What do you think? I feel like, uh, so defining, yeah, as you said, overlap. I think in this case, he might be saying the names overlap. Not that 85, you know, you're not getting a, a similar exposure to those oh, names. The weightings. Yeah. yeah right. Like if you think the S&P 500, yeah, it might have AstraZeneca, but AstraZeneca might be 0.8% of the S&P 500. Um, so I think uh, I'm not, I don't think I'd be that concerned that some of the names overlap. You just want to be have a lot of conviction in your medium-term view on the healthcare sector because you are adding an extra weighting just probably, as he said, to about, says 100 companies, but probably more likely 10 to 15 companies given the large, you know, the big size mm-hmm. of Ellie Lilly and uh, AstraZeneca and those, and those sort of companies in there as well. So, I mean, the way I tend to look at it is those weightings are fine. Uh, having a bit of overlap is fine as long as you've got a strategy around it. So, if you've got 90% of your core in the rest, maybe you end up splitting your um, tactical part into multiple sectors so mm-hmm. maybe you got some commodities or some financials or some energy or or others not just healthcare yeah yeah um yeah i think a lot of people are attracted to this etf and i think it's a really good etf it's got over 500 million dollars invested in it and we've used it yeah 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 I've, it was one of the ones i actually picked for my mom many years ago and she held it for years uh it's a really it's a fine etf in my opinion it's really good but um it's a bit interesting because it uses a it's not a full replication strategy so the australian etf invests in the us etf which is quite common um but then from there because it follows the 1200 index um it only provides exposure by holding a certain few of them. And I imagine there's some other type of thing. I didn't have time to look into it if it was futures contracts or something. But um, so it gets global exposure at 0.4%, uh, which is a pretty reasonable fee, to be honest. It could go in the core or on the, the satellite or tactical yeah. uh, portfolio, part of your portfolio. But I guess the most common reason people would be buying this, in my opinion, is that they think that healthcare spending is going to outpace every other type of spending as the population grows. Aging demographic, yep. more treatment. Yeah, definitely. But then it can be quite unique because some of the biggest companies might be pharmaceuticals, yeah. not necessarily the treatment that they need for age, for an aging demographic. So it's always that mix. And I think, mm. you know, on average, each of the other sectors, each of the other indices, I think the S&P 500 probably only has about 7% in healthcare. Australia only has about 7% in healthcare. Mm. So you're trying to bring that total 7% up to 9 or 10%. In your portfolio. Mm. The, um, the interesting thing here is that they've already got the Asian one. And the reason why I bring this up is, so if you're going for the IXJ ETF because of the growth, um, just know what you're doing it for. Like bring it back to first principles. Are you going for above average growth? Yeah. Because if you are, then is this the only thing that fits into that bucket of above average growth? You might find another ETF that has the ability to do that, but without the the overlap. So it might be something that you don't think about, like you said, I don't know, maybe not resources, but something similar um, where you think this has the the kind of focus that I want, like in terms of the return, um, but it may not be healthcare, maybe something else. And I think people miss that. I think people just go for the theme without actually understanding, well, why am I buying it? And like a good example is FANG, right? The FANG ETF, which you brought up before, Globalex long-term sponsor for full disclosure of our Australian finance podcast. Um, but that's a good one because it's easy for people to wrap their heads around. It's got like 10 or so stocks. 
there's no real theme other than it's just big technology companies. Yeah. But through those, you get exposure to growing big companies, if that makes sense. So maybe that's an option. And this is the way we think about global, uh, anytime we're investing in equities or global equities. Um, and when you're going from your core to your satellite, it is which sectors of the global economy could be a it could be healthcare, which areas of the global economy and which types of businesses are placed to grow faster than the glo- than the than economic growth will be because that's where the opportunity comes. That's why NVIDIA mm. and AI has been so performed so strongly this year because people think that's going to grow faster than the rest of the economy for the next 5 or 10, 20 years. Yeah. Um, so it's a big part of that and we, we would agree on healthcare generally. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think it's a good ETF. I think you can still... St- tuck it in there in like your whatever part of your portfolio. I just say just zooming out a bit. Um, if you're looking at all adding all these bits and pieces to your ETF portfolio, why not um, look at some of the other options that are available, like the VGS ETF as well, which is a global shares ETF. Uh, it gives you less control, but maybe it's an alternative. So um, account me not writes in and says, Hey, non bros. Thank you. Uh, awesome work you do. Thank you. Uh, my question is about what happens when an investment fund or company stops operating or merges with another one. They go on to say that they got an email from the Australian Scholarship Group and the investment was closed uh, and the benefit fund was being terminated. They were eligible for an ex gratia special distribution benefit. And my first thought was, this is a scam. I've since received funds from them, but I was just wondering what this was all about. Is it actually a scam? Or do funds pay out really old investors when they are closed? And what are ex gratia benefits really? <laughs> Just give me the easy ones here. I mean, <laughs> I think what you're explaining here is very rare. Yeah. So essentially, this looks like, I mean, I had a quick look. Strange Scholarship Group is like a uh, invest and futurity is provider of investment bonds or education bonds. So all I can assume is you're either like a, not a co-op, but a, a mutual society. You either own part of that originally or you had some old investment bond uh, or education products that either matured or very rare for them to close down as part of a sale to another group. Um, but uh, I think it does happen often and it isn't necessarily a bad thing. Uh, mm-hmm. We've looked at what happens to an ETF, what happens to a fund. Generally, I'll let you let you answer those. Um, ex- I, what I, all I can assume was that uh, the fund was closed, the capital was returned, but there was some excess income that was there because usually these things happen over multiple financial years. So you can't pay it all out and finish all the tax returns in enough time. Mm. So you might have franking credit sitting in there. You could have some a tax refund that came through. And this is, ex, I'm just guessing, ex gratia is like the buildup of those remaining benefits. Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of the where I got to. Um <laughs> <laughs> it's it's not normal, but there would have been reason for this for it to be closed rather than just merged in or maintained. So, like oftentimes in these types of things, the portfolio, like the legacy portfolio, is maintained. Yeah, um, retained profits. It looks yeah. like yeah, yeah. So if you uh, if you do have an ETF or a managed fund or even a super fund that closes down, typically you get a notification uh, and they say, "Well, you know, this is what's happening. Do you want to sell now, or do you want us to orderly wind this up?" Uh, and you just they wind it up, they sell the assets, and you get what's left over, basically. Yeah. Um, the problem is with any of these things, if there is a, that, if that does happen, uh, you're forced, you're a forced seller, so you're going to incur CGT if you're tax paying and so on. Uh, there is an option when you do invest in some type of product, like whether it's a brokerage account or something like that. 
the added layer of security that comes from having a chess sponsored broker, one that offers you a holder identification number or hint is that you can just transfer the assets straight out. Yeah. So you don't have to sell. You can just transfer them to a new provider, um, which is yeah. an added benefit. Part and parcel of investing. ETS yeah. will close. Companies will close. Uh, yeah. Funds will close at different times. We've had a few close and you get your, you get the value of your units back. Um, but usually scams are asking for money. Never, never give money. Yeah. <laughs> or your login yeah. details. Or yeah. security codes. Yes. <laughs> when they call you, do not give them your security no. codes. Never. <laughs> call them back if you're concerned. Uh, Andrew Bearmouth says... <laughs> Love the pod, Andrew. I'm pro, I'm pro equities, though. I remember going I to. I went to an equities and growths one of our events a few weeks, months ago. I was sitting next to Nick Griffin from oh, Munro. Yeah. yeah. I asked a hundred people who thinks equities can do more than ten percent this year in January. Me and Nick were the only two with our hands up. There you go. So I'm a bull. You are a bull, and you did put your Not money where your mouth is with the the family. Yeah. Um. Which is yeah, it's fair enough. But the interesting thing is the top of this year, if you only listen to the first 15 minutes of this year, we're like, this Jeez, thing's doomed. What a bear. The Technically, it's going to be worse than... <laughs> Drew's, the, Drew's the bull, Andrew's the bear. Yeah. Uh, love the pod, Andrew Berrimuth. Moving the goalposts again this week, champ, question mark. Uh, okay, so the question goes on to say, would you consider payments slash fintech companies as a play on inflation? They say, for instance, no. SmartPay, whose terminals operate with a set percentage of each transaction being added, added to the customer's bill not the business owner. Uh, 10 to 50 cents onto the transactions is barely noticeable to the individual, but really adds up over thousands of terminals. Since it's a percentage added to the cost, as the costs of goods go up, so does their cash runway. Do inflationary pressures on prices of goods directly correlate to revenues, i.e., you know, inflation increasing at 5 to 10% increases their transactional revenues by 5 to 10%. This seems like an interesting theme given the current climate. Would love to hear your opinion on it. So maybe if you want to talk generally, I know a bit about um, smart pay. If you want to talk generally, yeah, I think this is always quite a challenging question. The first thing I, I look at is yeah, you, your revenue is going to increase with CPI increasing the cost of coffee and everything. But at the same time, if the RBA's you know plan goes according to plan. <laughs> People will spend less. Yep. So does the inflationary costs get offset by less consumer spending and less cafes, more people closing down or, you know, which is naturally is what could result from it. Um, and the other part is, uh, yes, great on the front end, but does that in, does that impact on the higher costs impact on the other side of the business? Um, I don't know a lot about SmartPay, I'll be honest there, but I know when you go to this sort of company, it's incredibly competitive sector too. Mm. So a change in margin or the clip you can take can be, can can offset the benefit of higher revenue. Yeah. And I think it's like every decision. You know, you look at, uh, yes, there's a positive on revenue, but there's it's such a moving beast that it's hard to, to oversimplify it. Yeah, I think that's a good point you make around oversimplification. Um, I think the theme, what they're trying to say is they're taking a, a, a micro example and blowing it up into the macro, which is can a company like this that clips the ticket um, you know, do favorably under uh, inflationary conditions? And the answer is yes. So the answer is that higher quality businesses, businesses that have purchasing power, uh, sorry, um, competitive advantage, like pricing power, they will tend to do better than lower quality companies, right? This is the general sense. Like that's why we see the quality factor. So when you scrape for all these companies and you get a list of them, you find that high quality companies tend to perform well 
they tend to if they fall they tend to not fall as far uh, that's probably one of the the insights similar to value companies but qual- high quality companies now you, you can't don't always know that they're high quality before well that's it <laughs> when they're trying yeah. to pass on the cost here no but say for example the fang etf when you made the decision to um, invest in that and it was around about the same time we ran an ad actually because they get, we ran an ad on our finance podcast and they said, you know, what, which, like, how do you want to run this ad? And I said, I'd like to do it on the FANG ETF because I think these companies are more recession proof than others. So I'd like to do an ad and that would be the ad for the show. Um, and that's kind of what happened, right? Like these are some of the best businesses in the world maybe ever. Was I influenced? Maybe. Maybe you listen to the ad and you're like, oh, <laughs> Kate and I want to in my brain. Um, but- you know, this is the theme that if you do have a high quality company, even in a tr- more trying environment, that's when they should do better. And that's when the good CEOs of these companies will make pretty bold decisions typically, like to, to get rid of employees if that's what they have to do or to make acquisitions of cheaper companies. But so if we zoom into the micro, I think people make the mistake of thinking that the micro is representative of the macro. So you could invest in SmartPay, which is a payment terminals business, or you could invest in Tyro. If you did this 12 months ago, Tyro is an absolute dog. SmartPay is a beautiful puppy. It's gone straight up, right? And so if you just took those two examples, you'd be like, they do something very similar. They look like they both do payment terminals. Tyro says it can do what SmartPay does, but one's gone up, one's gone down. And that's because that's what we call idiosyncratic risk, right? Like That's where the individual drivers of the return are not explained by interest rates. They're not explained by all that sort of stuff. So be very careful about that. But just generally speaking, we recommended SmartPay a few years ago um, and it's done very well. We had Marty Pomeroy come on the show as the CEO of the business. And basically everything was right for SmartPay over the last three years. That's what it was in this trajectory where it was paying off debt. Um, It was rolling out its terminals here in Australia. It was resourcing its team and it was building that footprint. And it's kept doing that. And that's why it's about to transition into massive cash flow. Um, that does not necessarily make it a good investment because the valuation has gone sky high with it. But I will say some things that you should look at. When you study smart pay, the things that you should look at are the cost to acquire customers. So how much are they spending on marketing versus how many terminals do they have? And they report this every quarter. What is the profit margin? Because that will tell you to Drew's point. Are they suffering from competition? Profit margins tell you that. Um, and the average revenue per terminal, that tells you to the point here, Andrew Berrimuth, if um, the company is actually processing more payments. Because if they stop processing as many payments, then you know either the business is not doing that well or the economy is not doing that well. Yeah. Um, during COVID, I actually look because Tyro does the same thing. They do weekly updates on their payment terminals and the network and how much payments they've processed. And I was looking at that as a sign for what's going on in the retail economy. And obviously, it wasn't good at the time, but um, that was really interesting. So, some risks around smart pay too. Obviously, it's very competitive. Um, obviously, um, some of the, the bears say that it's got no competitive advantage. Um, one final point here uh, is that a lot of people, when they think about business, they think of value proposition of a business and they try and define if that is the competitive advantage of a business, like it's value proposition. And what they do is they actually think about the value, Drew, more than they think about the proposition. So what I mean by that is a lot of investors, when they study companies, they go, well, smart pay isn't as cheap or as big as Apple. or So therefore, it's not as good value. 
But sometimes the proposition is more important than the value that people, like we all, you and I both have Apple phones. We could go and get an Oppo or Huawei and let China spy on us and that would be (laughs) all good and we would be subsidized, right? But we could do that, but we still choose to use the Apple even though it has the same features, right? And so my point is the perception, the value proposition is actually in the proposition itself. And smart pay has moved into selling mode. And Marty Pomeroy has a background in sales more so than software engineering. So my opinion is that it's the right man for the right job. Um, and it has a very clear proposition, which is that we get you a payment terminal within 48 hours and you can start taking payments. I was chatting to someone that I think their company got acquired by ANZ or they acquired ANZ's payment terminal fleet or something happened. They can say they, take it, they say it takes up to two months to get a small business a terminal once they sign the contract. Imagine if you're a small business and you have to wait two months. That's the proposition. Um, okay, moving on. Long live Wayne. Buffett. Buffett. <laughs> hey, brokers. I recently saw an opportunity to invest in a new platform called Invest in Ya Pharma. Usually a red flag. Yeah. yeah. It's a co-op style of platform and you essentially buy produce from a farm with a share in the capital gain slash loss. To date, over the past 12 months, they have avoided an average return of 20% across 45 opportunities on the platform. What are your non-personal advice thoughts on something like this? They they have avoided. I think they've been delivered a 20% return. Oh, okay. And so just- does it feel like trade finance? It feels like something like this. It does. So I went on the website and had a look at this because I hadn't heard of it before. And basically they have, they're trying to create a platform where they connect farmers who need money to grow, to keep their farm operating with consumers who are willing to buy the produce in advance and subsidize to benefit from some of that benefit that they give to the farmer. And there was an, the, the line that I got for the farmers was something like this. Pre-sell a portion of your produce to improve your cash flow. Build awareness and a following amongst consumers. So they're saying- It's almost like virtual or virtual for farms. Yeah. It's like you want apricots. I've got apricots. I, I, I know how much it costs me to produce those apricots. If you cover the cost of that, you'll get free apricots. And hopefully that means that I can have more stability in my farm and produce more good- this is feels like a nice idea, but I feel like it might struggle to get any scale. Uh, if that, you know, it's not like you're, you're going to lose money necessarily by going into it. There's always a risk of losing money. For sure. um, but it feels like it would make a sensible idea to be able to prepay. There's a whole industry based around trade finance, though. This is similar to trade finance yeah. or, or some, uh, what do you call it, invoice finance, where you're essentially lending against. Things that you haven't produced or you haven't finished yet, and getting paid in advance to keep spending that money. Um, so it's, I mean, there's a lot of pressure would go on to that group to be doing the right due diligence with those groups. Mm. Um, and I think the risk with these is that they never get enough scale, uh, and you end up paying, you know, you end up paying fees in some way or another. The farmer doesn't get everything they want. The investor doesn't get everyone they want because they're trying to build a business in the middle at the same time. Not saying it's good or bad. Um, I think the struggle with these is getting real scale. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I um, yeah. If you invest in something like this, I think you just have to treat it as extremely speculative. Uh, there was a there's another app called Our Cow, and that's what we've been purchasing meat through. Um, 
and it connects you directly with a farmer, basically. So um, it's just the same thing, but without subsidizing the farmer and without the farmer getting the benefit. Um, like nothing against them, but uh, I would just say do the checks and balances. If you don't invest more in this business, that uh, like you just really want to know everything before you get involved. That's what I'll say. Not personal advice. John writes in, very simple question and very simple question and name. By the way, this may just take it as the most creative question, no name this week. John writes in and says, do you recommend anyone who sets up an SMSF? And I think I was going to answer this as what do you recommend or whatever, but maybe we'll go with you, Drew. What do you say? It depends. Okay. <laughs> the two most beautiful words in the English language. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, SMSF is just a, an alternative structure to to hold your superannuation. You can do an industry fund, you can do a retail fund, you can do a self-managed fund. All the laws are the same. Uh, like anything, we'd ask multitude of questions, but there's probably five things you'd consider if you're going to set up an SMSF. Yes, we recommend it to a lot of our clients. Uh, naturally, they're all in retirement. Um, the big things there are how big is your balance because of the fixed cost with SMSFs. Um, I think the ASIC said somewhere around half a million dollars is what you generally need. Do you actually want control over your investments? Do you want to invest in things that you can't access somewhere else? Is transparency important? You can't always tell where your industry fund or other fund is invested. SMSF, you can see everyone. Um, And then what are you really seeking to achieve? What is the the key benefit of it? So we'd go through multiple Mm. meetings um, with our clients to find out and make sure that was the appropriate option for them. Yeah. And I think, yeah, you touched, you hit all the nails right in the head there. Um, transparency, cost, cost is a huge benefit when you're at a certain balance. But if yeah. you're below that balance, then it's not so much a benefit. So that's the trade off. Um, and yeah, I mean, a good financial advisor can help you set that up. A good accountant can help you as well. Um, so yeah, good question, John. Uh, can I sleep over at Morgan Housel's house? Saul said, uh, I had this question a few weeks ago and I can't. I didn't get in contact with anyone to claim my prize. Uh, you can, <laughs> I, I wrote in the notes here, I've been away. I need to get onto this. And then Drew wrote, not good enough. Um, so Morgan's household, you can uh, write into us. If you can't get a hold of us, just find me on Twitter uh, and we'll organize that. So we'll have that to you very soon. Um, so we've got a couple more questions. Maybe we'll jump to Forgo. 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 Oh, like, yes. Okay. For Goff? Okay. I think Goff, yeah. He yep. referenced for Goff. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> that makes sense. So for Goff, it says World Bank is now considering a period of stagflation. Uh, and a recent ABC article mm-hmm. suggests it would be nothing like Whitlam's 1970s Australia. So what does stagflation look like in 2023 and onwards? Wow. Always getting the tough ones. Yeah. I mean, I think we said in the intro, stagflation is an environment where economic growth is slowing, inflation remains high, and unemployment is increasing at the same time. It's basically the worst case scenario. Um, and it's usually, I think in the 1970s, it was triggered by an oil shock or an extended oil shock mm-hmm. where oil prices were out of control and we didn't have the benefits of globalization um, and all those sort of things that have happened since and monetary policy and MMT naturally course, is another one. <laughs> um, yeah. And I think it's kind of what we went through at the beginning. Um, the the question to us is, I don't think there's certainty that you'll have a stagflationary environment. There's also the chance that inflation falls over the next, not the chance, I think it's more than likely inflation falls. A lot of supply chain issues might 
disappear. Mm. Um, and I think there are multiple outcomes. So it's had what what would be the assets best suited to a stagflationary environment? You can Google that pretty quickly. You get gold, real assets, commodities, and energy. Then you look back at the last 12 months and all those things have done incredibly well in an inflationary environment, not a yeah. stagflationary environment. So it feels like to me, maybe they're not the ones that work in this cycle. This yeah. is what's the saying? It, uh, history doesn't repeat. doesn't repeat it, but it rhymes. Yeah. Um, so just relying on what happened last time, given that this one is seemingly being triggered by energy at the same time, doesn't mean the same rules will apply next time around. Um, that was my non-answer. <laughs> I think the, 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 uh, the answer to this question is who knows, really. Yeah. And you can't prepare for this certainty. If you prepare just for this certainty and you end up in commodities, energy, gold, and what you're thinking doesn't come true, then what would you be left with? If technology continued to go up, if bonds came back, if inflation fell and unemployment wasn't as bad, you would be a long way behind the curve. And um, I, I think that there's a risk here of trying too hard to predict what's going to come in the next 6 to 12 to 18 months. And my view, and we talked about this at the top, um, is that the next six months will be incredibly interesting for people. Yeah. Um, you could probably say that about any time in history, but I genuinely mean the next six months because- we haven't had his interest rates increase like this in 30 years. So yeah. anything can and happen. The implications from here are there's a lot of variability. Like we and I don't think anyone knows, right? I think that's the the safe answer is no one knows. And this is the boring part of diversification. So when markets are going up and returns are good, you Easy. you you wonder why these other investments have performed poorly. And then when markets are falling and some of them, you know, they they do differently in different environments. But the whole benefit of diversification is that when tech's running at the moment, you should have a whole heap of investments that are doing nothing. Yeah. You know, if there's different levers suited, suited to different conditions, if all your portfolio is doing well in this environment, they're not going to do well in a stagflationary environment. Yep. So rather than try to predict when that timing is going to be, you generally want to build that into your asset allocation or your broad strategy that I've got investments that are suited to every type of environment. And yeah, I may not get 30% when the market's good, but I also won't get 30 when it's bad. Mm. Yeah. And uh, we don't know. There's been, I love the doomsayers that jump on Twitter and talk about stagflation because as Drew says, it is kind of the worst other than maybe like a nuclear winter. It's probably like the biggest thing uh, in finance to say stagflation because everyone jumps on Google and they're like, oh, that sounds terrible. Um, we know central we banks react quicker than ever now too. So yeah. if there's even the risk that unemployment starts increasing significantly, you know they're going to cut interest rates, even if that predict you know, impacts sends inflation higher again. Yep, and everyone's going to be back to VC. Uh, yep. So, <laughs> so uh, Mundru Ariath Esquire. So <laughs> I did, that was a bit of a tongue twister. Andrew Dermott's getting out of control. <laughs> Andrew Dermott's getting twisted out of shape here. All right, we've got time for two more questions. We'll go with this one. Could you elaborate on how the value of the AUD could impact returns for ETFs that hold international stocks? For example, IVV at FANG. I am trying to understand whether it makes more sense to hedge or not to hedge. What happens to these ASX-listed ETFs in the event that the AUD increases or decreases in value? So just for those that don't know, IVV and FANG, the two ETFs invest in US companies. So Facebook, Google, et cetera. True? Easy one. <laughs> we got this question on stage two, the hedging question. Remember that? Yeah. Uh, always the best one to answer. I think you got the perfect example. I think it was in the 1990s where you could look at the returns from the MSCI, you know, the global index, hedged and unhedged. So mm. the 
uh, hedged version. So the market, at the global markets did incredibly well for like 10 years. But the unhedged version in Australia was essentially zero. You got no returns for a period of 10 years. And that's because the currency, the Australian dollar appreciated significantly during that period. So massive impact, particularly as an Australian investor, because we're such a small part of the world and our currency can be so volatile. Um, I think this, this is part of where, where we, when we're building portfolios and having a framework, like we said before, diversification, that diversification asset allocation strategy has to also consider currency. Yep. Um, US dollar is the easiest one to, to kind of measure because most, you know, it's the biggest market in the world and the most reported currency. We just think you, you generally want a simple framework around it and you, what you want to do is try to remove or mitigate one additional risk from your portfolio rather than adding another risk to your portfolio. Um, I mean, you know our standard deviation. Yeah, I was trying to get the chart up. but um, So what do you mean by that, like rather than adding a risk? What do you mean? So going in either direction, being 100% hedged or being 100% unhedged is taking a very specific view on probably the Australian economy and the the outlook of monetary policy. So what we said before, you're trying to predict what's going to happen in the short to medium term. Um, and you know, currency is a risk if you if you play it wrongly or make a big call, you can lose money and uh, impact your returns pretty quickly. That's it's yeah, just an additional risk to consider. And as you say. The, the value of your investment is dictated if it's unhedged by what happens to the US dollar. If the Australian dollar rallies 10%, you'll lose a significant amount of value in your IVV and FANG. Uh, FANG doesn't have a hedge version yet. I know that. But IHVV is the yeah. S&P hedge one. Yeah. And we just have that two standard deviations. So if, if the currency is two standard deviations wider than the average, then you'd start to think about hedging. Um, and I think you've said in the past... It doesn't mean you have to hedge your current position and lock in capital gains, but it could be deploying new money into a hedged option uh, mm. rather than resetting your whole portfolio. Yeah, and that's exactly what I do, to be honest, um, yeah. is it's not all or nothing. Um, regret minimization is kind of what you were alluding to, but not adding risks. Um, so we've got time for one more question here, which is I must rask you a question. And they say, lads, continuing on with the lads. Since we are seeing these global giants, Microsoft, Tesla, Google, etc., becoming superpowers of the current world and establishing themselves in countries across the globe, not just the US, can you pose a counter-argument as to why you wouldn't want a majority US core portfolio? A lot of already built ETF portfolios, such as VDHD, have a US allocation of only approximately 30%. Long-term growth mindset for reference. Thank you. So I can maybe start with this one. So the US has dominated the planet for the past oh, 80, 90 years. Um, but over the past 30 years, I saw a wonderful chart the other day of exports. So China has come out of nowhere. I think it was 14th place. I think it was first uh, recently. Um, and has incredibly like dominant supply lines throughout the world. So if you look at the US... The, the, the key threat geopolitically, economically has to be China. Um, and they've got a Belt and Road Initiative. They're very clear about their priorities of setting up and using influence to pursue that. Whereas if you look at, say, the US, all you see is a bit of polarization and political left and right. And I think I often ask myself this question a lot because I do advocate for having like the IVV ETF is a major part of portfolios because I think it's a great ETF and I think you don't need to overcomplicate it with 
too much diversification around the world. Um, but the threat that always keeps me up when I think about this is the polarization of politics in the United States and how toxic that can be. Um, there's been studies done and people blame social media. It's actually not social media. It's been going on long, but long before social media was here. Uh, there was a study done by Pew Research between 1994 and 2014. They showed it every decade and they showed this. This is a quote. They said, ideological thinking is now much more closely aligned with partisanship than in the past. Um, and basically what we're seeing in the United States politically um, is, in my opinion, of course, is we're seeing people choose to vote and choose to support policies and parties regardless of the policies. So you put the, po the party before the policy. Um, and what that, I believe, means is you have more volatile people elected and it can cause issues with things because one of the competitive advantages for the USA for decades has been, in my opinion, its ability to attract people to it. So the ability to attract the world's best people to its country to work in its great companies. And if you have a political system which does not favour that or you have an environment, social unrest, that does not favour that, you will not get those people. It's simple. Um, and... Ultimately, this is my bear case, so it's not – this is just my bear case. <laughs> is, is Owen, that, Owen, bear ask. Yeah. Bear, <laughs> bear. So this is – but they asked for this, so I'm giving it a uh, If American politics can't, can't maintain that relative harmony, uh, its society will eventually implode. Um, now, that's the very scary doomsday thing. Do I think that's going to happen? No. But that's, yep. the, that's the case. So – I still have the IVV as my core position. It's still in the RAS core portfolios as the core position rather than VGS for that reason. And then you can add things around the outside. But one final thing around this question is that does not mean that I would go all America or nothing. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, I think, I mean, I agree with a lot of a lot of the points there. And then one of them would be the concentration. You know, America is incredibly good at technology, but technology shifts. And the way the world works now is, you know, you know the best semiconductor or the foundries produces in Taiwan. Uh, mm. Europe is incredibly good at different things. Uh, America's great at software and hardware at the moment, but that can shift incredibly quickly. So yeah. um, that's always the, always something you, you'd be wary of. And there's always going to be sectors that global leaders are present in many other countries, in China in particular. So yeah. um, that would be my bear case. But I mean, I'm probably half-half Australia global and within that probably 70 percent us just naturally yep. um yeah fair yeah, enough this, yeah um so and you because you also get the us dollar exposure which is something that people don't uh, appreciate i don't think if you think about the us dollar it actually insulates you against some volatility so keep that in mind all right drew well um the most exciting part of the day. Yes, thank you for taking some time to join me today. And if you, people want to find out more about you, they can head to waddlepartners.com.au and get in touch with you, Jamie, and the team there. So I appreciate your time, mate. Don't worry. Don't wait. Oh, the joke. Yes, you're forgetting the joke. Oh, and we've got to pick a questioner name. So I will say, uh, can you're I vote? Off. You've had a, <laughs> you're not oh. allowed to take time off anymore. I know. Okay. I, I think a play on um, Drew's name is a good one. So why don't we go with. Um, Drew Aramuth Esquire. Uh, let's go for it. If you wrote in with that name, you win the award for this week. Drew? Bad dad joke here. 
Thank you. What do you call a snake that's exactly 3.14 metres long? Pi. A python. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I'll give you about a four out of ten. That was yeah. not bad. Yeah, try that on tonight. I had a couple mate. of others. I always forget until right at the end, and then I'm Googling them pretty quickly. So. <laughs> That's pretty good. Uh, well, thanks, mate. And um, as I said, get in touch with Drew. There is a link in the show notes and the Water Partners team. Mate, as always, it's a pleasure. Good to see you. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.